Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Well, hey there, and welcome back. I'm Robin Goebel, and this is the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate that for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. This podcast was created to get free, accessible support to you as fast as possible. So it's not fancy. I do very little editing. There's no happy intro or outro music. In fact, some episodes are the audios from Facebook Lives, but not this one. Today, I'm recording this episode from my home office. If you love this episode, please add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player and share it with your friends and colleagues. 
if you've been following me, have listened to any other episodes, ever seen my blog or connected with me on social media, you know that I spend the vast majority of my time talking about one, understanding kind of the relational neurobiology of being human. So we have a better understanding about what's going on with our kids, what's driving their behaviors, like what's underneath what's happening for them, which consequently also eventually, you know, we turn that information back on ourselves and we start to see our own behaviors through this lens as well, which is just this fun byproduct of this because I think it um, brings us so much self-compassion for ourselves as well. But when we dive in and we really start looking at the relational neurobiology of being human, and then we look at parenting through the lens of kind of regulation and connection and felt safety, there is another unintended byproduct. In a way, it brings so much compassion to ourselves and to our kids. But in another way, it seems to really like open up and create an opportunity for us to feel more critical of ourselves or more shame towards ourselves. It always makes me think about when I'm teaching about attachment and I'm teaching parents or I'm teaching professionals, right? I always give language to, I always bring out into the open that it's impossible to learn about attachment and not bring our personal selves into the experience. Even if we're attending the training as a professional, attachment is so deeply personal that it's impossible to pull ourselves completely out of the experience and, you know, stay in this very like left-brained objective way of approaching the material. And so I'll often joke with the audience or with the students or the learners and say something like, who here has ever been a child, right? And of course that's everybody. And so that just evens the playing field right there. You know, that when we learn about attachment and we learn about how very early experiences and infancy and toddlerhood, that those earliest experiences are creating, right? Our narrative of attachment. When we think about how our own narrative then of attachment, our own experience in attachment relationships was created when we were very, very, very young, almost always, right? Our minds and our bodies begin to touch into some of those like earliest stored memories, earliest stored felt experiences. And then of course, it's also true that a lot of people who attend trainings on attachment or relational neurobiology are parenting. And if they're not parenting, the folks who are typically attracted to the trainings that I do are caring for kids in some capacity. They have some investment in supporting and helping children, even if they're not parenting. 
So there's this other way that we have, you know, this very intimate personal connection to attachment and attachment theory, even if we're attending the training, you know, with a professional hat on. Being a participant in these trainings, because I've of course done both, right? Like I've attended a million trainings where we're exploring attachment, relational neurobiology, um, early life experiences. I've attended millions of them, it seems like, and I've taught, you know, a lot of them as well. And truly, they they are just emotionally exhausting experiences. It's, it's so hard not to feel a sense of loss over what we're beginning to realize maybe we missed in our earliest experiences. And if we're parenting or caring for kids in some kind of personal or professional capacity, it also can be very hard not to move into an experience of shame. Right. As we realize all of the things that happened while we were caring for this child or parenting this child, all the things that happened that weren't ideal, things we realize we could have done differently. Right. As we're learning about attachment, it's just so hard not to notice the felt sense of regret or maybe of guilt or shame start to bubble up, right? So again, I attempt to create some felt safety in these environments and then these experiences by just openly talking about it, right? We were very deliberate about inviting all of our young parts of self just into the room, right? And we invite into the room are our parenting selves, right? And including, and really especially all the times that we've parented in ways that we regret. And I always try to do some appropriate self-disclosure about how that's true in my own life how as I've learned more and more about attachment, and and honestly, I've been learning about attachment since before I was a parent. I've been interested in attachment and in parent-child relationships since even before I became a parent at age 26, right? That I certainly can look back and, and, and have regrets or maybe guilt or shame about things that happened in my relationship with my child that I wish hadn't, or I know were not what he needed or left him with an experience of not being very seen, not being known, not being co-regulated, and maybe at times even being afraid. I, I wrote a blog article about this and if you want to hear the example that I really commonly use when I'm, when I'm teaching, an example of a time I messed up pretty big uh, as a parent, you can head over to my blog and, and, and check that out. So I, I tell this story, you know, to really just even the playing field. Like, yeah, we are all in this together. And here's the most important thing that 
we can hold these two at times what seem contradictory truths together. We can hold the truth of the relational neurosciences. We can hold the truth of attachment theory and attachment science. We can hold the truth of regulation theory and the importance of co-regulation and the importance of, of, of creating felt safety for our kids. We can hold these things as true and also hold as true that we didn't leave our humanity at the door when we became parents, that we aren't expected to be perfect parents. We couldn't possibly be perfect parents. And even if we could, that would actually not even be good for our kids. Our kids don't need us to be perfect parents, and it would be detrimental to their development if we could be perfect parents, which again, though, we absolutely can't. And it seems to send kind of ripples and waves of regulation through the crowd when I acknowledge times where I've really not parented in the way that I really wanted to or parented in alignment with my values or my ideals about parenting. You know, I think that there can be a bit of a sigh of relief, like, oh, if if Robin gets it quote unquote wrong sometimes, or if Robin like flips her lid or loses her cool or parents outside of her values, then of course I'm going to, right? If Robin does this and this is her job, like her job is to study attachment science and study, you know, the relational neurosciences and teach other people about it. And if this is her job and she still, you know, has times, plenty of times, by the way, where she's not getting it right, then it must be more okay that that's also true about me. So it sort of releases this expectation that can be, uh, I think, unintentionally communicated as we learn about attachment theory, as we learn about the relational neurosciences, and as we really understand like the role of parents, as we really understand the importance of co-regulation and we understand how important it is for parents to be regulated, Um, you know, parents provide the connection and the scaffolding that kids need. As we, you know, develop a deeper understanding of these truths, we've unintentionally tricked ourselves into believing that we must do those things all the time. And when we can't, we are failures. So now we have the situation where we're failures because you can't be like that all the time. Nobody is regulated all the time. Nobody is, you know, creating an experience of regulation and connection and felt safety for their kids all the time. It's just literally not humanly possible. There's this idea in the attachment literature of the quote-unquote good enough parent. That's an actual clinical word, good enough 
parent. And over the years, over the decades, as we move into having more science and data at our fingertips, and as we understand more about the relational neurosciences, we've attempted to quantify what does it mean to be a good enough parent. We can look at the literature around secure attachment and look at what we know the experiences are that kids have that coexist with them being coded in a kind of research or laboratory setting as having secure attachment. And what we see is that children with secure attachment have parents that are in attunement with them about 30% of the time, or maybe even a little bit less. So to put that in really plain language, what the research indicates is that kids with secure attachment have parents who are quote unquote, getting it right about 30% of the time or even a little bit less. That's a lot of time that they're not kind of quote unquote, getting it right. And here's what we know about that other 70%. That other 70% in kids who have what we would code as secure attachment, that other 70% of the time, those children are experiencing what we would call rupture and repair. So these kids have parents who are falling out of attunement with them. These kids have parents who are getting dysregulated themselves. These kids have parents who are parenting in a way that doesn't necessarily align with their values or ideals. And this happens for a whole host of reason. You know, when I'm not parenting the way that aligns with my values, I'm dysregulated myself. I'm not feeling connected to myself or to my child or to my family. I'm lacking felt safety. So this idea about connection and regulation and felt safety, that applies to all of us. And I'm not regulated 100% of the time, not even close, right? I don't have experiences of felt safety 100% of the time. So sometimes, yes, you know, I'm responding to my kid in a way that is really missing the mark, right? Like I'm, I end up not parenting and align with my highest values. Now, what we again also know from the research is that what needs to happen next when there's a rupture, when we fall out of connection and attunement, what happens next is repair. We come back into connection attunement. So we can say there's about a third of the time, you know, quote unquote, getting it right. About a third of the time we're rupturing with our kids and about a third of the time we're repairing with our kids. And the rupture repair experience in a way is almost more important than the getting it right initially experience is. Now, it's really actually not possible to quantify like which one is more important, but the rupture repair process is extremely important. So let's let's look at that for a little bit. Let's look at why. Why is rupture repair so important. Okay. So 
think about the last time maybe somebody noticed that they had a rupture in their relationship with you or that you noticed you had a rupture in a relationship with someone else and you noticed it and you decided you needed to do something about it, right? So repairing a relationship disruption, right? Repairing a moment in a relationship where things got off kilter sends a really clear message to the person you're offering the repair to. It sends this really clear message of, I see your pain, I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club, to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. Right. I mean, it's really easy to be with people fully and to see them and to know them and to give them this, you know, felt sense of being known when, when they're being really delightful and easy to be with. It's harder to see someone when they're in pain. And especially if that's pain that we've caused because of the relationship rupture. Right. And part of why it's so hard is hard for a lot of reasons. Part of why it's so hard to see that is because it's painful to us too. Right. So it takes so much guts. It takes so much bravery, a ton of commitment to a relationship to vulnerably, boldly, and with guts say, I see your pain. I see your pain and I'm willing to see your pain, even if it's me that caused it. Now, obviously we're not always kind of at fault for relationship ruptures with our kids, but sometimes we are, right? So to say, I see your pain, right? That takes a lot of guts and, and kids know this. The kids know that it takes guts for their parent to come to them and say, yes, I see your pain. I see what's happened, right? And then we take this next step and like actually offering this repair, right? And that is sending this message of, and it matters to me that you're in pain. Not only do I see your pain, which it's that's not that hard to do, right? I see your pain, but it matters to me that you're in pain, right? Caring about it, right? And then when we make this overt step towards repair, we're sending another message of, I'm willing to be uncomfortable myself in order to fix what has happened. I see your pain. It matters to me. And I'm willing to be uncomfortable myself in order to fix what happens. And this experience for our kids is gold. 
the, the, the experience of being so seen, you see that I'm in pain and the experience of receiving that level of commitment to the relationship, right? This is, again, this is like relationship gold. So that's what I mean about how that rupture and repair experience is almost more important than just getting it right in the first place, right? The rupture repair experience gives kids the experience that when relationships get like disrupted or they go, you know, a little haywire, that they can lean into the truth that the relationship can be repaired. They have the experience of knowing, even though that it's uncomfortable that my parent and I are like missing each other right now, I can be confident that we're going to fall back into attunement with each other. I can be confident that my parent or my caregiver is going to come back to me, right? That's also this belief that I'm worth it. I'm worth the uncomfortability of somebody taking the steps to repair this relationship. And they're learning that relationships are hard, but repairable. And they're learning that they can tolerate distress because it's not going to last forever. That is such a huge um, piece that comes out of secure attachment is I can tolerate this stress because it's not going to last forever, right? They get this experience of being good and lovable and that they can expect people in their lives who matter to them and say that they matter to them, that they can expect those people to be brave enough to acknowledge that something has happened or acknowledge that they've messed up. And I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I want my kid to, to know as he moves into adulthood, as he starts to seek relationships outside our family and he, you know, starts to have, you know, very deep friendships outside our family and he starts to eventually maybe find a romantic partnership. I want him to believe these things about relationship, right? And having experiences of, of rupture and then repair. Y'all, the rupture part's easy. It's the repair part that's really hard. And it matters so, so, so much to our kids. We don't have to be perfect. It's not good to be perfect. We aren't perfect humans. And again, we don't surrender our humanity at the door when we become parents. We don't have to be perfect but we do have to notice when there's ruptures and we do have to offer repairs and we don't even have to do that hundred percent of the time. And, and I cannot give you any sort of guideline or statistic on how often we do need to do that, but we do need to do it. So let's just say as much as possible. Now, obviously, of course, this doesn't mean that we need to go around like looking for opportunities to have major relationship ruptures with our kids, right? We we're not going like, to stress our kids out or cause stress to them on purpose so that we can have a rupture repair process. We don't need to do that. That would be unnecessary and and it wouldn't actually be like super nice, right? So there's plenty, right? 
I don't have to try to mess up. I do a plenty on my own. Like even when I'm trying not to, right? So if that happens to also be true about you, that you mess up plenty, even without trying, right? I want you to try to take some comfort and knowing that that's to be expected. You don't have to be perfect. You're not supposed to be perfect. It wouldn't be good if you were perfect, right? We just all have to work together to try to be brave enough to notice those ruptures and find ways to repair. Now, I don't want to pretend that this is easy, and especially because a lot of us possibly or probably didn't have parents that did a lot of repair or did a lot of at least kind of overt, obvious repair with us when we were kids. So it can feel really uncomfortable. Repairing with somebody is really vulnerable. So I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, but we can do it. We can practice and goodness knows I have enough opportunities to practice repair. There are plenty of opportunities in every single day in my relationship with my child and with my relationship with my husband where I can practice the repair. And that repair, remember that, re that repair says, I see you. I see that you're hurt. I care that you're hurting and I'm gutsy enough. I'm vulnerable enough. I care about you enough to offer this repair. If you're parenting a kid impacted by trauma or supporting other families who are caring for kids who have been impacted by trauma, you can find even more free resources over at my website, including blog articles, more podcast episodes, and several free video series. I have a video series on trauma, memory, and behavior, and it also comes with a free ebook. So you can find all of this over at www.robingobel.com. Who says www anymore? I don't know why I just said that. You can find all these things at robingobel.com and just kind of poke around, see what's there. There's all sorts of cool stuff to discover. While you're there, you can sign up to be the first to know when my comprehensive online course for parents, Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain. You can be one of the first to know when that reopens for registration, which I'm expecting or anticipating to hopefully be sometime in mid-February 2021. Don't forget to add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player, so you will always have the most recent episode at your fingertips. And of course, share with your friends, colleagues, everyone who helps care for kids impacted by trauma, teachers, coaches, lawyers, CASA, caseworkers, everyone. I will see you next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, Okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention 
hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash beingwith, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you can get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, eBooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.